High Noon with George Hook. News Talk 106 to 108. It's time for Numbers That Talk in the company of Deirdre Cullen, Senior Statistician at CSO.ie. Uh, Deirdre, uh, this week you brought a great book in. I mean, I'm really looking forward to the next uh, few moments with you. Life in 1916 Ireland, Stories from the Statistics. I can't wait. Honestly, this is amazing. Um, because it's a hundred years ago and, and statistics actually will paint, I presume, an absolute picture of what life was like. That's, well, that's right, George. So to mark the centenary of the rising, this was the CSO's contribution, if you like, oh, to the celebrations that yeah. took place right across Ireland <clears throat> this year. And we've brought out this publication and I've just brought along some interesting facts and figures from the publication. So let's start with um, the, what we were calling our, our boys and girls back then. And um, two names, a fifth of all baby boys back in 1916 were named either John or surprisingly Patrick. Yeah. Whereas nowadays uh, there's a far wider range of names used to, to name our children. So we were quite um, limited. Our, our choices were quite limited in what we were calling our baby yeah, well, boys. Of course we name them now after television programmes and there was no television in 1916. Presumably Mary was the winner uh, for, for girls, <laughs> you, didn't, you, you didn't even have to get me to tell you. I mean, Mary just stands out there. I think one in eight baby girls was called Mary and that was followed by Bridget. So there's not too many Bridgets around today. Whereas today, the number one uh, girl's name is Emily, followed by Sophie, followed by Emma, followed by Grace. So very, very different. Now, would you believe that two of those modern names you've read out are the names of my two granddaughters in London? No, I wouldn't be surprised at all. Emily and Grace. When I named my son Connor, I had no idea that it was the most popular boy's name in Ireland. So we all think we're, we're picking this special name for our child and our child alone. And then we find out that it's... All right. Now, one of the things that will be happening in 1916, though, the G-hook would be quite a rarity, would he not? 75 years of age. There wouldn't be too many old people. Like Life expectancy presumably was a lot less. It certainly was. I mean, in 1911, a baby boy born in 1911 could only expect to live to be 54. So you and I, George, would not be here. 54. <laughs> 54. Yeah. Whereas today it is uh, 17, 78. Now, women live longer uh, than men, George. So a, a baby girl born back then could expect to live 54 for 54 years only, whereas today it's 82.7 years. But, of course, you can see how the idea of the old age pension came out because nobody was going to reach it. Like having an old age pension at 65, most of the people were dying at 50-odd, so they didn't have to pay out very much. That's right. Whereas it was now people are retiring at 60 and, you know, your, your life expectancy for women is 83. But but there's another side of, of life expectancy, this mythical baby boy or girl you're talking about in 1916. Although the statistics point to they might make 50, huge numbers of them died as infants, didn't they? That's right. Infant mortality was very high back then. I mean, for every 1,000 babies born in 1916... Um, 81 of them died before they reached their first birthday. And in Dublin, that figure was 153. Now, out in the country, it was as low as 34 in Roscommon and Leitrim, it was, it was like 40-something. And so in Dublin, infant mortality was very high. 
But of course, you can understand why, because the living conditions of people in like we were reputed to have the worst slums in Europe in 1916. So clearly, Dublin's infant mortality was directly related to the living conditions. Absolutely. And even when we look at cause of death, we can see it was diseases like tuberculosis and bronchitis. But I have some numbers here on living conditions. So in Dublin back in 1911, there were 67,000 dwellings of which uh, 24,000 or 35% of them were one room dwellings. And in, in our online report, what we did was we went in and we looked at the census returns from 1911 uh, for some of these one-room dwellings. And we can see dwellings with eight people living in them. Now when you talk about a one-room uh, dwelling... With the shared bathroom on, on the landing. It's, a, it's, 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 it's one, one, it's one room. people. Eight people in, in one dwelling. We, we have a link to the census return for the Cunningham family in 1911 with eight people living in the dwelling. And two of those people, if I have the right... Um, family here because we have different examples in the book two of them are at work and they're working as fishmongers so can you imagine them coming home in the evening into a one room dwelling with eight people living in the one room after coming home now after this working bathroom, at the fish of course, market you're talking about might not be very much more than a tap Probably a, a cold water tap. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it wouldn't, ha- the, it wouldn't have had the power shower, that's for certain. The other side of that is that um, 20% of the dwellings in Dublin were 10 rooms or more. Now, that figure today is, is minuscule, the number of 10-room dwellings. So we had these large townhouses as portrayed in James Joyce's The Dead, 10-room dwellings where the wealthy were living and then around the corner down the street we yeah. had the one-room dwelling. A so moment, a, a city yeah. of, of huge contrast back there's a great, then. There's a moment in Sean O'Casey, one of Sean O'Casey's play and it, it, the person is actually named as the woman from Rathgar and like that was sort of, she she didn't know what the hell was going on, there was bullets flying and of course she was the woman from Rathgar so she didn't know anything about this. But those dwellings that we look at now, Rathgar, Rathmines, or around there, that was quite a wealthy Ireland. Although, interestingly, um, the, the, uh, the, 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 he was the leader of Fine Gael. He became minister for just uh, Mulcahy. Yes, Mulcahy. Uh, his son was a doctor, died just recently. But they were in that mind and they kept chickens. He told me that, that his family kept chickens in rat mines. So these contrasts are extraordinary. And, and my guest, of course, Deirdre Cullen, the senior statistician at the CSO, CSO.ie. Now, this is a fabulous book. Um, it's the statistics of 1916 and, and the stories that they portray. Where can we get it? Because, I mean, this is something that uh, people, I'm sure, would love to get. Well, the entire publication is on the CSO website or just contact CSO.ie if you'd like a copy of it. So I, I don't think we got it into the bookshops. I'm not sure. But if you got on to CSO, you could get more information about now, it. So there's a whole range of data. And what we did in the report is we linked back to a lot of, we found the census returns for a lot of, if you like, prominent figures from the rising. So people who were heavily involved. And we have links there to their 
to their census return from 1911 and telling find them like yeah and telling and telling different stories and so you can look at the 1901 return where somebody might say they they gave birth to seven children and then you can look at the 1911 return and you might just see five children there and a a child will have died in a fire and there's a whole range of fascinating stories because of course families were women gave birth to a lot of children but that also was partially because there was a high infant mortality so you might give as you said you give birth to seven but only five survive the other thing is about that period if you go to Glasnevin Cemetery they had these kind of mass graves where like there was a flu epidemic or something and you can actually check the epidemics against graves in 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 uh, Glasnevin where large numbers of children would have died. Yeah, no, it's interesting you mentioned the, the Spanish flu epidemic because <clears throat> in the report uh, we're saying that we, we think up to 20,000 deaths on the island of Ireland between 1918 and 1919 as a consequence of, of flu, the Spanish which flu. Which had swept across Europe like which had decimated Central Europe. Germany was part and parcel after the war. Now the war is important here, sure because 1916 is in the middle of the First World War and because of Redmond and all this, there are enormous numbers of Irish men serving on uh, the Western Front and elsewhere. Yeah, so we did an interesting exercise. So we took um, males aged 15 to 19 years of age in 1911. So I think they started going off to war, George, did they, as young as 16. There was 155,000 males in that age group. And by 1926, all things been equal, you would expect 155,000 to be in the 30 to 34 age group 15 years later. But there's only 93,000 of them, which means 63,000 from that age group are missing. Yeah. Now, and obviously, emigration would have played a role. That's right. But, but, but um, the death toll amongst the Irish was enormous. I mean, like at Gallipoli, for instance, they, the Irish regiments were, were nearly massacred. So the, the, the effect of that First World War would then... Is there any way we... we there, there's, there's no definitive estimate how many right. people Irish men died in, in World War One, but it's thought to be at least 35,000 and possibly as high as 49,000. Yeah, because not a town or a, a mm. city in Ireland doesn't have names. Paddy Hart, in fact, the former Fine Gael TD, has done a wonderful job on that, of, of all the people who served in World War One. Now, what about, um, like hospitals or disease or whatever because disease like things that we've now wiped out like tuberculosis and things like that disease presumably is rampant when you think of living conditions particularly in Dublin yeah, so if we look at total deaths in 1916, there was 51,000 deaths that year. Um, whereas in Ireland in 2014, there was only uh, just under 30,000 deaths. So fewer people are dying every... There's less work for undertakers in today's Ireland than there was back then. But the main killers were bronchitis, pneumonia and tuberculosis. Almost 7,000 people died of bronchitis and pneumonia. I mean, diseases that are eminently curable today. And then TB, uh, 6,500 Well, I mean, if you think of like something like pneumonia or bronchitis, you'd be going to a GP now and you'd be giving you a couple of antibiotics and you'd be, you know, running around the place the following day. Um, I mean, yeah. But but TB now, TB we didn't crack until 
1950 pretty well, or 60 even. Isn't That's that into right? That's the 60s, I think, George, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and it's so, still popping up every now and again, I think, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So um, were there any, was there anything else that kind of, when you were doing these figures, that jumped out at you as, as a kind of surprise well, I was, for you? I was talking last week about prices and what we spend yeah. our money on and the rate of inflation. So back in 1911, we were spending 57% of all our money on food. And I was telling you last week that it was 10% on the supermarket shop. So that's an enormous difference. And um, Inflation, though. Was inflation, like I know the Weimar Republic in Germany, they had hyperinflation. But was inflation an issue for Britain and Ireland at that time? I don't have any figures on inflation in front of me. But I can tell you that the cost of a woman's coat... A heavy coat back then was 30 shillings, which in today's money is 188 euro. So that seems reasonable enough for a nice coat, 180 euro. But the average school teacher only earned 32 shillings a week. So the cost of a woman's coat was a week's work, was a week's work for, for a school Whereas teacher. Now it wouldn't be a, Not a at week's all. work. Sure, yeah. Sure. Yeah. We, we, right. we have disposable clothes. Because interestingly, the fellas who sell you gold, I don't know whether you buy gold or not, but the price of gold is invariably rated against what a, a cost of a, a good suit would be. So whatever the price of gold was, like in Nero's time, it was the cost of a good toga. Do you know what I mean? And gold, in fact, although the price has gone up, it's remained stable relative to a good suit. Okay. Whereas a woman's coat has changed dramatically and presumably a man's suit and so on. Yeah, it always strikes me as one of the things that's cheaper now than it ever was. Yeah. Our, our clothes, you know, we, we can, our clothes are completely disposable. Well, that's why, <laughs> well, that's, that's why you had a Sunday suit. I mean, all men only had one suit and they only wore it going to mass on Sunday. Yeah, it's interesting you should say that because there's some fantastic photographs in the book of kids dressed up for Sunday and you can see them in their little jackets and their little white shirts and then they'd be standing there in their bare feet. <laughs> oh, no. So some of the photographs are fantastic. But, I but have you would have had high church attendance now. You'd be near 100% on church attendance, wouldn't you? I would imagine so. And then I finally have some figures here on uh, motor cars. And yeah. of course, because of the, the role of Ford in Cork, which you'd like to remind us about. In 1907, the first four cars ever to be seen in Ireland went on display at the Irish Motor Show held in the grounds of the Royal Dublin Society. And by 1913, some 600 Ford cars were sold throughout Ireland. And it was 1970, 1917 um, when he opened up his, his plant. And by 1930, he would 7,000 employees. In Cork. Uh, in Cork, in Cork, and then of course it closed. Which well, you I like lived to only people. just up the road. I was only up the road, and at about five o'clock, all the men would be coming up on their bicycles uh, from Fort in their thousands, and there'd be the little boys going e- eco, eco, and eco was the echo, the evening echo, and it was one penny, and they'd be selling it to all the Ford's employees on their bikes. And I used to be, we used to be really teased off because we couldn't play football in the street. There'd be so many bikes going up the street. So we had to cancel football while the Ford fellas were going home. But Ford's had a team. One of the early winners of what you'd now know as the FAI Cup was Fordson's, a football team. There you are. There you are. The stuff you learn from statistics. <laughs> Deirdre Cullen, um, a senior statistician at the CSO. Don't forget this wonderful book. Um, it's all up there on CSO.ie. Life in 1916 Ireland. Stories from the statistics.